0: Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. My name is Brad Jones. I'm filling in for Matt Bowen, our uh, Minister of Worship and Music here at UBC, while he and his family are on vacation. As we begin our time together, I want, uh, I want to read Psalm 117 to focus our minds and our hearts. Let's go ahead and stand as I read this. Praise to the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and, his, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever praise the lord praise the lord indeed that is just what we have gathered here to do this morning like jonah even in our turning away god proves his faithfulness to be our refuge and our salvation this is our hope this is our prayer and this is why we give him praise so let's sing this song together
1: you my god have saved my soul i am yours forevermore i won't be moved of this i'm sure you are my god and you save my soul i was lost when you came for me held in chains by the enemy, but you broke them in victory. Now I'm free. I am free. of my joy, and you are my hope. I am saved by your grace alone. I will sing of your love for me. I am free. the king of kings he has paid for my every sin and from now through eternity i am free i am free you my god have saved my soul i am yours forevermore i won't be moved of this i'm sure you are my god and you saved my soul once was dead is now alive you gave to me the breath of life you brought me up out from the grave I'm bursting out with songs of praise dead is now alive you gave to me the breath of life you brought me up out from the grave I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this, I'm sure. You are my God and you saved my soul you my god have saved my soul i am yours forevermore i won't be moved of this i'm sure you are my god and you save my soul
2: Amen. Good morning. You all can be seated for just a brief moment. It's good to see you. How you doing this morning? Everybody doing well? Good. All right. Good. It's good to have you here with us. My name is Jeremiah Smith. I'm the pastor here at University Baptist Church, and we're so glad that you all have decided to worship with us this wonderful Sunday morning. If you are a guest or a visitor, we want you to know that we're so glad that you are here. Uh, Part of what we want to foster here is to be a part of a loving community Uh, in a place where you can feel known, where you can feel welcomed, and where you can feel included, and find that meaningful community that all of us long for and desire. So one of the ways that we can help extend that to you and share more about who we are as a church is just to get some basic information from you. And so if you would look in the back of your pew racks, you can see that we have these nice little nifty welcome cards, if you wouldn't mind filling out one of those, and then putting it in the offering plate as it comes by later in the service, that'll allow us to connect with you and share more information about ourselves that hopefully is helpful to you. You can also text that information by using this number that's on the screen. And if you just want to text uh, that number, it'll ask you just a few prompts that gives us a little bit more information that we can then follow up with you all and, and again extend to you a warm welcome and answer any questions that you may have. Uh, now, I showed up today at church wearing a nice little button-up shirt, believe it or not. But when somebody greets you at the door and says, I have a t-shirt for you to wear at church today, you say yes every single time, anytime you can wear a t-shirt. And so, as you can see, uh, this is in celebration of uh, our Kid Power Camp, our VBS efforts, and a lot of things are happening in this regard. In fact, this week, we're, we're taking these uh, efforts to a couple different apartment complexes and communities in the neighborhood and one of the things that we want to remind you of is that we have a training today after the service. And so please make yourself available. It's going to be in Harris Hall. And so at the conclusion of the service, please go there uh, as that will be important information. But for all of you to continue to just pray for these efforts that will be ongoing this week, and then we'll be hosting them next week here at our campus as well as at Westcliff, And so we want to see God move mightily in the lives of these kids, the volunteers, and the adults that are there as well. And so, uh, definitely be praying for those things. One other final comment as we begin today. I'm going to pray for us, and, and we're going to ask God to join us uh, through the spirit of worship this morning. And uh, On a slightly more serious note, I think many of us have seen the news this past week as two notable figures in our culture uh, uh, tragically took their own lives, and, and that that was some difficult news to receive. And then we also saw that combined with the fact that the CDC has indicated that there's been a the steady increase. Um, and, and depression and loneliness and things that have led to such acts. I think a 25% increase since 1999. And so one of the things that, that I just want to say uh, in regards to that is I want us to pray for those families. I want to pray for those people that have gone through those situations and circumstances is that um, we want you to know first and, and foremost that we want to be a place that if that's something you have struggled with, depression, loneliness, that, that you can be safe in a place like this. Uh, that we want to know um, how we can help. And so please don't hesitate to reach out and ask for help. Uh, the other thing that we want you to know, as we said earlier, is that this is a church that wants to foster a true, truly loving community, and we want you to know that you're loved. And so please don't ever feel like you're going through that alone. And I know a lot of times, even as believers, we feel that just because we've committed our lives to this gospel, that we should somehow be immune to some of those thoughts and some of those tendencies. And that's not the case. We all struggle with different things and have different battles. And so we don't want you to be hesitant to reach out for help. And so if that's something that you're going through, please feel safe to do that. You can come to me, you can come to one of our ministers, but we want to walk through those journeys with you. And so let's just pray for God to obviously minister to those folks that have gone through some of those recent tragedies, but also uh, for God to just inhabit our praises and inhabit our prayers and inhabit our time this morning as we continue in the spirit of worship. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for a new day. We are grateful for an opportunity to come in here and to see that you have saved our souls and to celebrate what you've done, celebrate your grace and your mercy. And so we pray that as we gather together today, that you would truly stir our hearts and our minds to a greater devotion and a greater commitment to you. Uh, We we pray for those who recently have tragically lost their lives, and we know the the families that are in the friendships and all the folks that um, have seen that uh, put on display for for the news to to highlight, knowing that many of us have experienced that on a more personal level uh, with with people that we know intimately within our own friendships, within our own families. And so we just pray, Father, for those that, that battle with those feelings of depression and loneliness, that they would feel the warmth of your care and your love and that all of us would be able to foster a safe environment where people can come and experience that love in a very authentic and tangible way. And so let this be a congregation and a church that provides that to all those that go through those similar situations. But ultimately, Father, today we commit to you, we entrust it to you, and we celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. And so may you be glorified and honored today as we worship you. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. At this time, I'd love to invite the children to come forward to hear a word from Miss Tricia. While the rest of you please stand and greet each other and say hi and welcome each other this Sunday morning.
0: All right, church family, go ahead and find your seats as Miss Tricia brings our children's message.
3: Hi, friends. How are you guys? So I've decided that um, I'm going to play a sport. And um, I've decided that I'm going to play tennis. So I'm going to show you what I brought to play tennis, okay? I brought a bat. And I brought... A glove, and I brought a ball, and I'm ready to play tennis. What, Carter? This isn't a tennis ball. Really? This is for baseball? So I brought the wrong tools, the wrong equipment. Well, that's a bummer. I can't do anything for tennis with this? All right. Well, I'm sure glad that you guys know what you're talking about, because I obviously don't. But I do want to say that, that reminds me that in our Christian walk, we have some tools that God provides us with, right? And God is our ultimate coach. He's the one who tells us what we need in order to live our life. And um, so this week during Game On, see my cool shirt? And Jeremiah was, is wearing that cool shirt, right? So during, in the next couple of weeks, we are going to invite you, or I invite you guys to come to do Game On with us, Kid Power Camp. And during in this game on thing, we are gonna be learning about how Jesus is our coach and we have all we need through Jesus to live life's big game. And he provides us the necessary tools, which is this, what is this? Our Bible, he provides us the necessary tools in order to to live our life. And so during that week, we're gonna be talking about that. So maybe, I need to take up baseball with these equipment things that I have, right? Maybe not tennis. Maybe I should figure out what to use for tennis. Well, Everett, I'm glad you know that and you told me that. Now I know. So let me read you this verse. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So all of the power that he has, he's given us so that we can live a godly life. So I hope you guys can come in a couple of weeks for that, okay? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we do thank you that you give us everything that we need in order to live life to the fullest and live life like you want us to. We pray now, Father, that you would bless those who are bringing their offerings. We pray that you would bless it to the body of this church and to the activities and ministries to it. And we just thank you, Lord, that you call us your children. Thank you for each one who are here today. May they know how powerful your love is for them. And it's in your name we pray, amen.
2: So before we continue in a spirit of worship, we want to enter into an intentional time of prayer. Uh, As I mentioned last week when we had a chance to to pray over uh, Janae and Sam and Natalie who are now safely in Africa and we continue to pray for them. I mentioned to you last week that this is the time of year and the season in our church where we constantly are sending people out. And as we mentioned earlier, some of that means sending people out into the community like we're going to be doing with VBS this week. We got folks like Raymond and Mary Ellen who are going to be going to these apartment complexes sharing their love of Christ with kids through BBS sorts of efforts. But we also folks have folks and teams of people are going to be uh, traveling overseas into different countries and different places and we want to send our prayers and our efforts with them as well. Uh, One of my favorite passages of scripture to to encourage the church in these efforts comes through Ephesians chapter 6 and it, it falls after Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God and what that does for us and after he describes it He encourages the church and says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So what I would love to do is to call attention to the team that is preparing to go to Guatemala. As you all know, this is an effort that has been a, big part of our church for quite some time. Uh, we go every year and have the opportunity to bless the community there by putting in a lot of uh, sweat and tears and all sorts of uh, effort into building these homes for families that need it. Um, and in the process of providing and meeting those needs, it's, it's the intent and the hope that we get to fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So I'm grateful for the teams of people that uh, have volunteered to do this, and I'd like to acknowledge them. If you would just stand where you are, if you're in the congregation today and you are preparing to go to Guatemala, why not you just stand up so we can see you. That includes choir, absolutely. So here's what we did last year with this. Um, I know that this may be a little unusual or a little challenging for folks, but uh, one of the other customs that we see as a part of the church family is to lay hands on people and send them out. We see that practice in Acts chapter 13 with the church in Antioch. We see it numerous other places. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask that if you are nearby somebody that is standing. uh, And you can just go ahead and stand up with them and get close and lay hands on them. And I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And after this is done, we will continue in worship. And so just go ahead and reach out. If you can't reach them, reach the person in front of you. And we'll just spend some time praying. Having your hands laid on these folks, I would ask that you would first just in your own heart and mind, go ahead and offer up prayers for their safety and for their provision, that you would ask the Lord to bless them and keep them and, and all the different details that it takes to travel, that you would keep them safe, that you would keep them in God's constant care. Pray that you would continue to lift these people up and pray that they would be able to be enriched in their heart and in their mind. Pray that God would use them in a mighty way, that God would would be able to encourage them, that they would grow in their understanding of who God is and what He has done. pray that you would just ask for God to bless them in their communication and in their relationships with the folks that they're going to meet, that, that God would use them beyond language barriers and that these folks would be able to communicate the hope of the gospel. I would ask that you would just spend some time praying that this team would be able to fearlessly make known the gospel. That they would truly be Christ's ambassadors through their efforts and through their labor. Father in heaven, we do. We ask that you would once again take this team and release them to your purposes and to your kingdom. Father, that as they leave today, you would allow them to to step into your purposes, step into your plans, and that their presence and their existence in this community... In Guatemala it would be a tremendous source of encouragement, that it would be emblematic of your love for those people and that through their efforts, people would be transformed and changed by the hope of Jesus Christ. We are grateful that we are a church that has folks that are willing to go and to pursue these calls and pursue these endeavors with great cost, with great sacrifice, with great commitment. And so we ask now, Father, that you would return a blessing upon them and that their labor would not be in vain, but it would be one that is filled with the fruit of your kingdom. And so we are grateful for this opportunity. We pray that you'd go before them and that through their cause and through their efforts, you would be glorified and more people would come to know the saving work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. For it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask that everybody else would stand. You can make your way back to your seats, but if the rest of you would go ahead and stand, we're going to continue in worship this morning.
1: Sure and steady anchor In the fury of the storm When the winds of doubt blow through me And my sails have all been torn In the suffering, in the sorrow When my sinking hopes are few I will hold fast It shall never be removed Christ the sure and steady anchor While the tempest rages on When temptation claims the battle And it seems the night has won Deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. The sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance, sees love for i never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death when these trials Your grace that leads this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. By grace I grace I am restored, and now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. Your grace that I cannot explain, Not by my earthly wisdom The Prince of life without a stain Was traded for this sinner By grace I am redeemed By grace I am restored Now I freely walk into the arms of Christ, my Lord. Let praise rise up and overflow. My song resound forever. For grace will see me welcomed home. my Savior. By grace I am redeemed. By grace I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. Sing a church. By grace. I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ, my
0: Lord. Amen, church. You can be seated.
2: Amen. Amen. Hey, let's pray together. Just you bow your heads with me. Father, there are times that we attempt to sing of your amazing grace, but our efforts fall short to capture the beauty of what it really brings. And so, Father, I pray that as we come down and we submit ourselves to your holy scriptures, that once again we can be transformed by this grace that has redeemed us and restored us. Father, that we would know that we freely walk with you I know that many of us come into this room today, Father, with different concerns, different apprehensions, different fears. Sometimes we come in with the frenetic pace of of busyness, and I would just pray that in the stillness of the moment, you would help us to see what it is that we truly come for. We could see you more clearly, Father, that you would pierce through the distractions and that our hearts and our souls and our minds would be fully devoted to you. That once again, this word would prove to be living and active. Father, I'm unworthy to stand before anyone and to teach. And so, Father, I also sit as a student and we all come before your throne anxious to hear from you. Father, it is only by your spirit and only by your grace that we are ever changed, that we ever learn. And so may we set ourselves aside and fully submit to you that once again we might be transformed by who you are and all that you do. And pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. So as we begin today, uh, preparing to finish out the first chapter of Jonah, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination, okay, I want you to to join with me for a moment and and do your best to use your imagination, okay, I want you to picture yourself waking up in the middle of January in New York City, okay, and you wake up in your hotel room, you look out the window and you can see that it's a cold day, you turn on the news and it confirms uh, what you sense, that the highs on that day are going to be about 20 degrees, and so you dress accordingly, right? You bundle up, you start to pack your bags, because later that afternoon, about 2.45, you've got this flight that's scheduled to leave from New York City to Charlotte, North Carolina. And so you get through the rest of your morning, you get on the other side of lunch, and then you start to embrace the chaos that is the mass transit system of New York City. You take a taxi cab to LaGuardia Airport, and once you get to LaGuardia, you begin to submit yourselves to the rituals that we now all experience with a common experience of air travel, right? And that starts with the ticket counter. You go in and now you once again discover that people have been replaced with kiosks and you go in and you type in your little confirmation code, get your boarding pass and fill out your little information, get your baggage claim tag that you can go ahead and just put on your bags and then you go and you drop off your checked baggage at this little counter. Then you move on, move on to the next part of your ritual, which is the Joy of the security line. Now, the security line is always filled with great people watching, right? You get to see the family over there explaining to the young child what's going to happen when they fly. You get to see the businessman over there rushing through a few calls. You're more than likely going to encounter one passenger that's frantic and worried about missing their flight because they showed up a little bit late. And as you're watching all these people, you take a sip of water and have that moment interrupted by a TSA agent that just begins to yell for everybody about how much liquid they can actually take with them and remind you that you're not going to be able to finish this bottle of water that you just purchased. And so you take one last sip, you throw it away, you get up to your point in the line and you go through the, the disrobing, right? Take off your shoes, take off your belt, take off your jacket, take off your hat, take your laptop out, put it in a bin, and then you wait your turn to walk through the metal detector. As you're standing at that yellow line, you get to see on the other side of the metal detector that thankfully TSA has once again identified somebody's grandmother as a potential threat. They're searching them, going through all their luggage. Then you walk through security, and then you reverse the process. Put your hat back on, put your jacket back on, your belt, your shoes, grab your laptop, put it in, and you begin to make your way out of this part of the ritual. You go out into the main terminal, and once again, you need to confirm where your gate's going to be. So you look up, and you see the monitor. You see 1549 U.S. Airways, Charlotte. Okay, you confirm your gate, and you begin to make your way down off to your right, knowing that your gate is just a couple of ways down, just a couple of gates down. And on your way, you stop off at that random hybrid gift shop slash convenience store that every airport has, and you replenish your snacks, get another bottle of water, finally make your way down to the gate. And you're sitting at the gate in that black leather chair, and you see that it's pretty full. It seems to indicate you're going to be on a full flight. And so you begin to wonder how much longer before they board the plane, and there might be a little bit of a delay. But you do see the plane out there. Seems like a little bit of a larger plane than normal, and so that seems to be encouraging because the fact that it's larger means that maybe, just maybe, you get a little bit more leg room than if it had been one of those smaller planes. And now you just need to kill time. So you watch the monitor that's several rows ahead of you, whatever's on the news. Doesn't seem to be anything noteworthy or notable. When finally you hear a voice begin to disrupt the rhythm with the pre-boarding process. Now the pre-boarding process to, to you has always been kind of fascinating, correct? Because why does anybody want to get on a cramped plane earlier than anybody else. Like, why would you want to spend more time on that plane? Wouldn't you want to spend less time? And yet here are all these pre-boarding folks. And airlines, as this one will reveal once again, has all these different designations, these different groups that get to qualify for pre-boarders. And for some reason, they always designate these groups with precious metals and stones. And the list seems to get longer and longer every time you go to the airport. So you hear the groups, diamond, ruby, sapphire, platinum, gold, gold platinum, Topaz, Onyx, right? And they just keep on going. And all these people, special privileges, get to go onto this plane in front of you. Finally, they finish with all those groups, and you get to see the commoners get a chance to join. And so you, you rise with your fellow travelers and get into that kind of single file line as you make your way down the jetway. And you walk onto this plane. got three seats on either side. walk down this center aisle, and you're looking for 22A. So you walk further on down, and you get to this this row that's close to the wing, you're looking for overhead bin space, and as you arrive at your spot, you notice just maybe a little bit behind your row and off to the other side of the aisle, a little crevice, and so you cram your carry-on there, turn around and look and see two travelers already in your row, so you excuse yourself, climb over them, and you take a seat in that window seat next to the airplane wing, and you can finally breathe a sigh of relief, the rituals of air travel more or less behind you. Now you know you just have about two hours and ten minutes before you're in Charlotte. So you begin to think through, how are you going to spend your time? Maybe you're going to read a book, pretty tired, maybe you'll take the opportunity to have a mid-afternoon nap, not really sure, and so you go ahead and waste the last few moments before you have to turn your phone to airplane mode to check a few more emails, send a few texts, and at 324, your flight, a little behind schedule, is finally cleared for takeoff. And so you feel the plane begin to accelerate down the runway and begin its ascent. And what you don't realize as your plane is about to take off is that the next two minutes and 15 seconds are going to drastically change your flight experience. And they're going to drastically change it in such a way that the next 31 minutes are going to be some of the most terrifying moments of your life. See, at 326, right as the plane begins to take off. What you don't know is that the 57-year-old pilot, with more than 19,000 hours of experience, is leading this plane up into its ascent and turns to his first officer and says, man, what a great view of the Hudson today. In 34 seconds, 34 seconds after that comment, the pilot, yourself, every other passenger hears a loud bang over and over again, and then You look out the window and you see the engines on fire. And all of a sudden you feel and smell actually the odor of jet fuel fill the cabin. And that sound that you're hearing is the sound of an engine failure. And everything changes in that moment. That steady climb, that steady ascent is now leveled off and the nose of the plane begins to subtly tip downward. Panic begins to set in. Right? All the questions begin to flood. What was that? What caused it? What does that mean? What are we doing now? And you begin to wrestle with these questions, and the inevitable question that begins to get closer and closer from the front of your mind is, are we going to crash? And for the next 120 seconds, that feels like an eternity. You begin to wrestle with whether or not that's an actual possibility, when all of a sudden you hear the captain come on and confirm your fears when he says, this is the captain brace for impact. And in that moment, those those procedures of safety precautions and all the things that you've just tuned out your whole life become a reality. As you and everybody else around you begin to lower your head and you brace for impact. And you've always anticipated maybe in these random moments of your life or, or question, what would it be like to be on a plane that's about to crash and you've imagined the hysteria, you've imagined the cries, the screams, the panic and for whatever reason in this particular situation it was just an eerie silence. Everyone gripped with fear by the situation. Others beginning to lock arms, some beginning to whisper prayers and there you are realizing that this might be how you actually die. And so you start thinking about your loved ones, the last conversations you had with them what you said maybe what you didn't say never realizing in the moment that that might have been the last conversation you have then you start thinking what's it going to be like is it going to hurt is it going to be quick is this going to take a while but the the undeniable reality that you're facing is the the potential or what seems like now the certainty that you're going to die And so, for the next two minutes, you wrestle with those questions. And over and over again, you become just overwhelmed by the grip of those fears and those realizations. You look out your window, you see the skyline of New York getting closer and closer, and you finally close your eyes, embracing the certainty of death. And all of a sudden, you feel that jolt. And it is this alarming jolt, one that that surprisingly feels more like just being rear-ended in your vehicle on a freeway, and you have this moment of realization that though it was very unsettling and uncomfortable, it wasn't fatal. And you look and you can see that out your window this 82,000 pound plane is resting on the Hudson. And if there was an eerie silence before, now the pandemonium kicks in because you and everyone else have had this glimmer of hope realizing that death hasn't come, and there's still a chance at survival, but how long will that chance last? So people begin to rush out of their seats, climbing over each other. A lot of them rush to the back of the plane, only to cause it to sink further into the river, thereby bringing the chilling waters of the Hudson onto the plane. So the flight attendant redirects them back to the center of the plane, redirects you and others towards the front, and people begin to climb over seats, and you see these people that you had seen before desperate for survival. You see the 86-year-old grandmother. You see the young mom with the six-month-old, and you see the businessmen begin to shout over the chaos, let women and children go first, and you see these people slowly begin to make their way out onto the wings of the plane, others out onto the rafts that had been inflated out of the front emergency exits, and you begin to wait your turn. Finally, you have your opportunity You step into the aisle, you feel the cold waters of the Hudson hitting your knees, and you make your way out into the plane, onto the wings of the plane, joining dozens of of other passengers. And you're standing there, and you're holding your life vest, and these other ships begin to descend upon this plane with rapid precision, and are able to stop close enough where they can actually begin pulling people onto their boats. They begin to pull them one by one, and you're waiting in line, at your chance for safety, waiting in line for somebody to bring you up, wondering how much longer will this plane stay afloat when finally somebody hoists you up onto the boat and you begin to watch and see every other person experience that same form of rescue. And it's probably then and not until then that you're on that boat that you finally realize you're going to be okay. You've been saved. You've been rescued. And at 3.55, 31 minutes after you were cleared for takeoff, the last person, the captain, was taken off that, those, those rafts, taken off that plane and brought up to safety. And you begin to discover later, all 155 souls that were on board that plane made it. A few minor scrapes, broken bones, some with hypothermia. Nobody lost their life. And so, tension uh, swarms in around the world, right, on this, this amazing thing that has transpired. And a lot of attention, obviously, centers around your pilot, this guy by the name of Chesley Solander, right, the guy goes by the name Sully, and the way in which he made these split-second decisions that led to this a crazy occurrence, and people start calling it a miracle, the miracle on the Hudson. And you begin to think, well, yeah, it is a miracle. You think about all the different things that transpired for for it to work. The fact that you had this pilot that knew exactly what to do. The fact that you had this plane that was actually built and prepared for some form of a water rescue. You think about the fact that you had the Hudson at all, right? To be on a plane where both engines lose their power and their thrust over the most populous city in America. To have a wide open space to land or to at least attempt a landing that doesn't include crashing into buildings or jeopardizing the lives of people below the river itself was a blessing. The passengers that helped each other off the plane, the responders that were able to get there over and over again, you see what an amazing miracle it really was. A miracle that took you from certain death to rescue and new life. It was a miracle that revealed unexpected mercy. And that's what miracles do, right? They give you this experience of unexpected mercy. And it's funny that people would call it a miracle because if anybody had told you earlier that day that you were going to be on a flight that was going to crash in the Hudson, that would be the last word you would use to describe it. You would describe it as tragic. You would describe it as uh, terrible, uh, scary, right? Any word but a miracle. And yet that's exactly how it was perceived. And you and I today, those that obviously were not a part of that experience, look back on that flight on January 15, 2009, and refer to it as a miracle. A miracle that revealed unexpected mercy. And I use that as an illustration for us this morning because that's why we're here. That simple truth, every single one of us at some point or another in our lives has come to grips with our own mortality, the, our own certainty of death, and have been exposed to this miracle that brings us out of the clutches of death and into the hope of new life. It's the miracle of unexpected mercy. It's the gospel. It's what brings us back week after week to sing. It's what brings us back week after week to hear the proclamation of his word, to spend, spend time with his community. It's the miracle of of unexpected mercy. And the verse we're going to look at today in Jonah gives us one of the most beautiful and eloquent pictures of the miraculous unexpected mercy of our God. And I want you to think about the similar circumstances that we've seen thus far in the book of Jonah. We're only going to look at one verse today, but think about what's transpired up until this point. Right, the word of the Lord has been revealed to Jonah, Right, the, to go to Nineveh and to preach against it for its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah refuses. He, he flees from the Lord. He gets on its boat. He goes out to sea and he gets with this crew from Joppa when God sends a great storm, a storm that is so terrifying that the sailors themselves fear for their lives. They cry out to their God. They send uh, the cargo overboard. They begin to cast lots and they discover that Jonah is the one that is at fault. So they come to him and they say, What do we need to do? How do we. Uh, satisfy your God? What do we need to do to alleviate ourselves from this storm? And in that fear, Jonah says, you've got to throw me overboard. He confesses his own disobedience. He surrenders his own life, knowing that his confession is going to result in the certainty of his death. And so the, the sailors are resistant at first. They're hesitant. They try to walk them, or row themselves out of the storm back to the shore, but it only gets worse and worse. And so finally, they throw him overboard. Now, Let me ask you a question. If you had never heard this story before, right? If you had bypassed Sunday school and had missed the whole felt board demonstration and all those other things, you didn't know what the story was about, what would you expect at that point? They throw Jonah overboard. What what would you expect to occur? You'd expect him to die. No one could survive this storm. It was a a gesture, a moment of certain death. But instead, we get chapter 1, verse 17, one of the greatest plot twists in all of scriptures. One verse that we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, you can read it with me. Right after they throw Jonah overboard into the ferocious sea in this fierce storm, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's a phenomenal verse. Now, you talk about not seeing something coming, right? I mean, of all the things you could conjure up that would happen to Jonah, the last thing that would be in my mind of expectation would be a fish to come and swallow him up. Now, I will tell you that in all my years of knowing the story of Jonah, right, when I would read about him being swallowed by the fish, I would often interpret this as being the worst part of the story, right? This is like where Jonah officially hits rock bottom. I mean, does it get worse than being swallowed by a fish? Can anybody think of a worse scenario? Right? I mean, like this has got to be terrible. It's almost as if God was using Jonah as a punching bag saying, yeah, you think that storm is bad? Check this out, right? Like I'm going to send a fish to swallow you. And so, so I would often think of Jonah and his story and think about this moment as being the worst, that it would be the most difficult part of this story, but as I begin to study it, what I begin to realize is that the fish is not actually a measure of judgment, but a measure of mercy. This is how God decides to rescue Jonah from the storm, which is mind-blowing and unexpected to say the least. But because we know that had Jonah just been thrown overboard, it would result in certain death, what we need to see is this, this unexpected instrument of mercy in this fish that actually serves as a rescue to Jonah, not a punishment. And we'll see the fulfillment of that rescue and the depths of it later as we look at how it impacts Jonah in chapter 2. But what I want us to see this morning is how this verse is one of the most gracious, poetic, and beautiful revelations of God's unexpected mercy that we have in this entire story. And so let's, let's break it down just real quickly and see some of the things that we can learn from this verse, and then we'll talk about the implications of it. The first is, is that God provided, right? You see that word provided, and again, it speaks to God appointing certain things, ordaining certain things, and this is a theme that we see over and over again in Jonah. This will not be the only thing that God provides or that he appoints, right? He appoints a plant later, a worm, a wind. We've seen that he has sent the storms. I mean, God is constantly revealing that he is the one in control. And so that's something that we continue to emphasize as we go through the story of Jonah, is that if you're in a storm in life, or you're in a, a, situ- a situation, a circumstance, or a season where things feel out of control, can I just reassure you today, nothing goes beyond God's control. Now, we struggle with that at times, because when we begin to walk down that path, then it makes us wonder, well, then does that mean God is the author of evil? No. Now, we talked about this at length several Sundays ago when we talked about God sending storms. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. We have that posted if you need it. But what I would just reiterate is that God is not the author of evil, right? We live in a broken world where bad things happen, right? And those those instruments of brokenness are going to create challenges and difficulties. But just because we live in a broken world does not mean God has surrendered control. He is always in control. And so we see God's sovereignty at play here. God appoints a fish, right? He provides a fish. More than we need to maybe consider this verse from a question of God's sovereignty, we should emphasize on the fact that God provides. And wherever you are in life, you find those moments of just being overwhelmed. You find yourself being tossed to and fro in the sea, wondering which way do I need to go? How do I get out of this situation? The Lord will provide for you exactly what you need. Now, the challenge for us is that we want the Lord to provide for us what we want. And what we want does not always match with what we need. Right? God's provision, his unexpected mercy, it doesn't always show up how we want it, when we want it, and, and the ways in which we want it. But make no mistake, one of the amazing things that we see in Jonah 1.17 is that Jonah needs to be rescued, and God provides. He sends a fish not just any fish, a huge fish apparently. Now you look at the, the mechanism which God has sent this unexpected mercy, this miracle of unexpected mercy, and we, we see this theme over and over again in, in the first chapter of so many things being referred to as great or large or huge. It's the same word over and over again. We saw it in verse 2 in describing Nineveh. We see it uh, with the wind, we see it with the storm, and now we see it with this great fish. And I, I don't know that there's a a definite message uh, that the author is trying to communicate other than just the fact that this is a significant sized fish. It's important and it's a key part of what God is going to use here. Now, the fish itself is not described. We all say Jonah in the whale, but we don't know. We don't know that it's a whale. We just assume because it's a large fish. could be anything. In fact, one of the scholars that I was reading suggested that it might have even been believed at one point in time to be the Leviathan, which if you're familiar with other references in Job and some other places in the scriptures, the Leviathan was kind of this sea monster, so to speak, that that was definitely uh, a creature that created a sense of danger and fear. And so even if we were to play that assumption, part of what that does is reiterates God's ability to have control even over those things that are dangerous, right? That, That nothing can escape his control and his sovereignty. But regardless of what type of fish, we know that the Lord provides a fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the word swallow is often used as a term to be a metaphor for ruin and for destruction, right? It it definitely is an indicator that what's happening to Jonah is that it is leading towards death. Now, this death is being further accentuated in this verse by this reference to three days and three nights. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Uh, first of all, we have a reference towards a specific duration of time. Now, that's pretty significant as well, because what that is teaching us is that God is not just sovereign over creation, he is sovereign over time itself. At, exact, at the exact right time, he sent a fish. You think about the miracle on the Hudson and the timing of all of it. Every simple detail leading to a divine moment of rescue our god is not just a god over creation he is the god over time itself he gives us what we need at the time that we need it and so this reference towards duration reminds us of that fact but what's really unique is the way in which it's described three days and three nights now the the way in which scholars have i guess digested or or critique this particular phrase is for us to not to understand it necessarily as a literal three days and three nights. It's probably referencing three full days. It does have a sense of some sort of duration, but it's more an approximation than it is specific. And in particular, some scholars would argue that it actually is a phrase that was used to reference kind of a journey towards death. For example, uh, there is this common understanding that potentially the journey from the land of the living to Sheol or the land of the dead took a three-day and three-night journey. And so it's a phrase to reference that progression into death. Okay, so another comparison would be if you heard the phrase six feet under, right? It doesn't literally mean six feet, but we all know that that means death, right? Somebody's being buried. And so the point is, is that we have this phrase that emphasizes that though God has appointed this fish, it's leading Jonah to this point of death from which he will be delivered. He is literally being delivered from death through this fish. And so you have this fascinating one verse that creates a drastic change in events in a way for us to understand it. And so the question for us is, what are the implications? How do we, how do we look at verse 17 and truly understand all that it implies for us in terms of understanding not just this, this book, but really God's character and his truths? Well, the first thing that I want to reiterate is that the first implication is that this is an act of mercy and not punishment. And this will be fully fleshed out as we go through chapter two and you see the transformation that Jonah experiences. But, but what you and I need to recognize is that a lot of times we misinterpret what God's doing in our lives and we will classify it as punishment when in fact it is mercy. Right, the miracle in the Hudson is a great example. If somebody says, well, you would crash in the Hudson River, well, that doesn't sound pleasant to you. But in the moment and looking back, what do you discover? Oh, it's actually merciful. Right, think about children. We often use that as an illustration to help communicate these points, right? Children, a lot of times, will come with certain requests or certain desires. I want to play in the street. I want to eat all the sugar that I want. I want to have all these different things. And a parent will say no. And when that parent says no, it's easy for the child to interpret that instruction as being punitive. Why won't you let me do this? This is unfair. All the different kickback and all the different frustration and the tantrums. But that, that is not a parent being punitive. What a parent knows is that if you go play in the street, it could harm you. This is me protecting you. This is me saving you. This is merciful. So the first thing that we need to see in verse 117 is that though we may read it and initially see it as punitive, it is in fact an instrument of God's mercy. And that's true for our own lives as well. How many times do we go through things that we feel like we're being punished for or that are difficulty, but when, in fact, God is saving us and refining us for his purposes and for his plan? It's mercy, not punishment. Now, the other thing that we see with verse 17 is an opportunity for you and I to consider together how are we supposed to understand the miraculous, right? Because this is, without a doubt, a miracle, right? And so if you're like me, the tendency when you read verse 117 is to start asking a bunch of questions. What? How did this happen? Is this possible? What kind of fish was it? How long was he in there? What did the stomach feel like? What did he eat while he was in there? Like, I mean, there are so many questions that you could ask. And, and here's what I want to say about that. Uh, it's natural whenever we encounter the miraculous to do so with a level of skepticism and doubt. Now, I would argue today, or what I would encourage you today, is that there is a way to have healthy skepticism right? It's okay to ask questions. A lot of times, I feel like we treat doubt as a bad word, right? And that because I'm a believer, I should never have a question. I should never wrestle with it. Guess what? We're going to wrestle. It's why it's called faith. Every single one of us are on a journey of faith, and we're going to have questions, and that's okay. I want you to see this as a place to to feel as though it's safe to come with your questions and to ask and to seek greater understanding. That's part of what it means to, to live with faith. You know, part of what we begin to need, to, or what we need to begin to acknowledge is that anytime you start talking about well, how do we make sense on what happens after death, when we talk about other religions, other philosophies, everybody's operating by faith. All of us are. We need to be comfortable with that. Okay? People don't debate and wrestle certain facts, right? There are no... There, there isn't anybody around here today that's gathering together to debate whether or not two plus two equals four. Right? If we were all to go up to the roof after this sermon today and, and see if anybody can, can jump off without being hurt, nobody's going to doubt whether or not they're going to fall. We don't doubt the, the validity of gravity, do we? No, we know it's going to happen. Right? Those things are certain, but there is a a comfort level that we have to achieve when we start talking about faith because faith is being sure of what is hoped for and certain of what we cannot see, right? We're we're always gonna have questions when it's anchored in hope and things that we can't see. And so it's okay to have a healthy level of questions, but the problem is is that when you read verse 117 and you start asking too many, you begin to wrestle with all the details, you miss the value of what the miracle is meant to achieve anyway right? The miracles that we see in the scriptures are supposed to strengthen our faith, not weaken it. It reveals once again who our God is and what he's capable of. The miracles reaffirm his sovereignty. They reaffirm his power. And that's where we need to put our trust. That's where we need to put our hope. And one of the greatest frustrations that I often experience in my own life, and I would say even in the life of the church, is that we often view God as a God that is far too small to be a God of miracles. And you think about how we pray, and we pray for, for little things, we pray for small things, and it's almost as if we've forgotten what God is actually capable of doing. And so one of the implications of reading a verse like this today is to be encouraged. God does the miraculous. Our God is a God that can take the barren and make them conceive. He's a God that reveals himself to people in dreams and in visions and in burning bush. He's a God that can part the waters, a God that can shut the mouths of lions. He's a God that can enable three men to walk through a fiery furnace unharmed. Our God is a God of miracles, and those miracles are not just some ancient story. He is at work today, and we need to believe that and have that conviction and that trust that our faith is stirred by the fact that our God does the miraculous, and His miracles often lead to unexpected mercy. And that's what I want us to speak on just a little bit here. Is If he does the miraculous here in verse 117, why does he do it this way? Why does he send a fish to swallow Jonah? What are the implications in this particular miracle? Well, there are two that I want to call our attention to. The first is, is that he teaches Jonah a specific lesson. Right? This fish is going to lead Jonah, as we said, through this three days, three nights, swallowed in the belly of the well. is going to lead Jonah to the, to the very depths of death and then delivering from it. And so in that, Jonah is learning a lesson of, number one, who God is and the mercy that he extends. Right? He's a disobedient prophet that has come to a point where he says, I admit my wrongdoing, I confess my disobedience, and I know it means that I deserve to die. But what is God going to do? God's going to save him. He's going to give him mercy. And that's the very same message that he has asked Jonah to share to Nineveh. So before Jonah can preach it, he has to experience it. Jonah is going to experience the very mercy that he is going to be commissioned to tell. And not only that, it's going to serve as a sign to validate the message that Jonah is going to carry. Because word's going to travel after something like this, in case you're wondering, right? The people in Nineveh are going to hear how Jonah got there. And when they hear of this miracle, it's going to add credibility to what Jonah has to say. So that's one of the reasons that God is doing it. He's doing it to teach Jonah a lesson first so that he can experience it, but also so that it validates Jonah's message when he arrives in Nineveh. But the other thing that has taken place here is something we can never forget whenever we read the scriptures, is that God is crafting a much larger story. Right? He is drawing us not just to Jonah and not just to Nineveh, but an unexpected mercy for all men and women. Right? He's drawing us to the hope of a Messiah. In fact, we know this to be true because Jesus himself references this miracle in his own ministry. If you have a moment, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Let me read this for you. Matthew chapter 12, we have this sign of Jonah that is being taught by Jesus. And I want you to follow along with me in verse 38. It says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So, so imagine this for a moment. Part of what God was doing when he sent the huge fish to swallow Jonah was preparing a very message that Jesus himself would declare to the teachers of the law in this particular time. And so consider the contrast, right? Here the teachers of the law are asking for a sign. This is where we get unhealthy skepticism, right? This is where we get unhealthy doubt. Them asking for a sign is essentially saying, we need you to prove yourself to us. Now, Jesus had performed many miracles, correct? He had already done many things to demonstrate his power and his authority and his sovereignty, but what they wanted was Jesus to do something on command, to, to verify and to validate, to eliminate all questions as to who he was, right? This was prove yourself, right? Now listen, that's unhealthy skepticism. When you and I have questions and we begin to ask for signs for God to, to verify certain things, it's one thing if we're looking for signs to help us make decisions, right? If we're, if we're needing signs for clarity, for, for greater understanding on where God's leading, that, that, that's okay. If we're wrestling with how to make sense of our faith, those are good questions. But if we start to come before God and say, prove yourself, watch out. And let me just be very clear, God has proven himself. And Jesus essentially reiterates that. He says, listen, wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, none's gonna be given to it. Right, Jesus doesn't capitulate to those sorts of requests, right? He has proven himself. And that's what they're asking for. We don't want to just have these miracles that we're unsure of. We want you to do something on demand so that we are sure of who you are. And Jesus says, man, none of those things are being given to you, only the sign of Jonah. And he references the very verse we just talked about, right? Who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and so will I spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And so what we have now is that Jonah, in his being taken into the depths of of the, of the fish and into this point of death, into the land of Sheol, right? To the land of the dead and then being delivered from it is the image, is the foreshadowing of Jesus himself also being buried into death and then also being able to overcome it and delivering others from that same reality, right? Jesus is the one that is going to bring people through and bring people to that safety over death. And so we have this incredible symbolism, this incredible imagery that helps validate Jesus's message. And so in the same way that this sign and symbol validates the message of repentance that Jonah brings, Jesus is now saying you're going to see something very similar through my death and my resurrection, and it's going to validate my message. And what is the message of Jesus? The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. It is the unexpected mercy of a savior. That's the message of Jesus. And so we have this incredible verse that has all this symbolism that points us back to Jesus. And as Jesus says, you've been given Jonah, but now one that is greater than him is here. And so when we read verse 117, yeah, we need to marvel at the miracle of the Lord providing a fish, but it should bring us to the feet of Jesus and recognize how great he truly is. And so there are three things that I would say we need to, to learn from this passage, this, this unexpected mercy that we have in the gospel and apply to our lives when we consider a passage like this. Three things that I want to close with. What do you do when God reveals his miraculous, unexpected mercy? The first thing you have to do is receive it. Now, listen, it may not be what you expect, It might be how you expected it or when you expected it. But make no mistake, every single one of you that's in here today, all of us have to come to grips with our own mortality. All of us have to create some sort of awareness of the certainty of death and ask ourselves, what is gonna save us from that dilemma? And we have been given the unexpected mercy of a savior that brings us into a right relationship with God the Father, right? That through Jesus and his Death and resurrection, he takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness and he makes things right. It is an unexpected gift of his sovereign love. And the first thing we have to do is receive it. And so if you haven't truly received the gift of this mercy, do so today. This is more than just going to church. This is more than just going to Sunday school and having answers. This is having a life transformed by the gift of the gospel. And so you receive it by acknowledging your own brokenness, acknowledging that you, like Jonah, deserve death, and you submit yourself into the hands of a Savior and allow him to give you the forgiveness and the redemption and the restoration that we also desperately need. You confess it, and then you receive it. And then the second thing you do after you receive it, you extend it. See, part of what I love about Jonah receiving this mercy is that it was teaching him to extend it to others, like we said a second ago. So when we are the recipients of God's unexpected mercy, we need to extend it to others. I'm fully aware that many of us in this room today have fractured relationships. Right? We have people that we've wronged, people that have wronged us. We have disdain for certain people politically. Uh, we have disdain for people at work. We have hatred for people based on their skin color their socioeconomic status. We have wounds from from people in our family that have treated us a certain way. We have all these wounds of these fractured relationships. And let me be very clear, our responsibility as ambassadors of the gospel is to extend mercy, to extend grace, to extend forgiveness. What the scriptures teach us is that the same mercy that we extend to others is the mercy that will be extended to us So don't be selfish with it, extend it. And then the third thing that we need to do is not just receive it, not just extend it, but we need to preach it. We need to preach the miracle of unexpected mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. Can I just be honest, as you guys have heard me say, we are surrounded by people that are walking with this unhealthy skepticism, right? People that are questioning whether or not God is real, questioning whether or not there's any hope, that are constantly asking the questions, living a life that leads them into greater darkness, greater despair, greater depression, whatever it is, and they need to hear the message of the miracle of unexpected mercy. This is a privilege that we have been entrusted with this hope, that we've been entrusted with this gospel, and so it is not one that we keep quiet, it is not one that we just reflect on and meditate on, it is one that we can't help but want to share to all those that need it. And so we receive it, we extend it, we proclaim it, we preach it. This is how we receive and respond to the miracle of unexpected mercy that we have through Jesus, our Savior. And so when we go into this world and we declare what God has done, we need to once again remind people of how God works, right? That it's not always what we anticipate. Mercy is not always found in these steady flights, and these smooth, moments of travel. But a lot of times, mercy is found in the crash, miraculous landing. Mercy is not always found in those bright and sunny days, but sometimes in the darkened storms of life. Mercy is not always found in perfect health. Sometimes it's found in the trenches of treatments. Mercy is not always found in success, but in the depths of, of failure and despair. Mercy is not always found in the luxury of comfort Sometimes it's found in our own insecurities and our own anxieties. Mercy's not always found on this established vessel, but sometimes it's found in the belly of a fish. Mercy's not always found in this conquering king. Sometimes it's found in the humble manger. Mercy's not always found in the rule of law, but sometimes it's found in the forgiveness of the cross and the compassion of a carpenter. Let me remind you again today, church, as we look at this one simple verse and be encouraged by the fact that God's miraculous, unexpected mercy is fully revealed in Jesus of Nazareth who gave his life and was buried for three days and on the third day rose again, defeating death, thereby affirming and validating the hope that all of us need to cling to today that the kingdom of heaven is is here. May we all repent and believe this good news and celebrate the miracle of his unexpected mercy. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we do today. We celebrate who you are. We celebrate your love, and we celebrate your grace. So I pray that you would allow us to be stirred by the hope of how you move Father, that many times there are things that we don't expect, things that we don't understand in the moment, things that feel difficult, things that feel challenging, but we know that perhaps they are working within us a greater understanding of your mercy, a greater understanding of your sovereignty. And so I pray that as we continue to to worship you today, you would awaken our hearts and our minds to your unfailing love. You would allow us to grow in our understanding of who you are. And Father, that it would erupt within us a life of praise, a life of devotion, one that is ready to declare for this world to hear the miracle of your mercy. Father, sometimes in life we want it to unfold a different way, but we trust in you. And so for all those in here today that are wrestling with with how things are unfolding and when they're unfolding and dealing with that anxiety, I pray that we could all rest assured and rest comfortably in your mighty care and once again, trust this Savior that has come to save all of us through his gift of the cross and the power of the resurrection. We love you, Father. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. So we're gonna continue in a similar fashion to what we've done in the last week or two where we just wanna encourage you to reflect on this hope of mercy, right? That it's through God's mercy that we truly experience his unfailing love and so this is a new song that we're going to teach you today. And so we'd encourage you to obviously use this time to pray and just reflect and, and uh, consider what God's prompting you to do. But also just listen to the words as Brad begins to teach it to you. And after he's taught it to you for a little bit, we'll invite you to stand and we'll continue in the spirit of worship. But let's just begin by letting these lyrics penetrate our hearts and our minds so that we can truly once again be swept away in the love that God has for us. So why don't you just stay seated. And then here in a moment, Brad will invite you to stand as we continue to worship
1: From the darkness I called your name Into darkness your mercy came You called me out, lifted me up How great is your love You bore my weakness, you took my shame my burdens in fields of grace you called me out lifted me up how great is your love from the heights of heaven you stepped down to earth innocent perfection Gave Your life for us, and we are amazed. Yes, we stand in awe, Yeah, we have been changed by the power of Your cross. How great, how great, how great is Your love? How. Great Stand Together Church. step down to earth innocent perfection gave your life for us and we are amazed yes we stand in awe, for we have been changed by the power of your cross how great how great how great is your love Been and there will never be a God like you, a love so true. There has never been and there will never be a God like you, a love so true. There has never been and there will never be. God like you, a love so true, yeah. how great, how great, how great.
2: Love to extend an invitation. Before I do, just for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you guys. Why don't we just do that chorus one more time, uh, and we'll use that as our time of invitation? Sorry to change that for you guys, but just knowing we got meetings and groups that need to convene, and we crammed a lot into the service today, but. As we finish by singing that chorus uh, another time, I do want to extend an opportunity for folks to be able to make a decision in public if that's something that you want to do. Obviously, we want to celebrate any decision where folks who want to maybe possibly come and make this their church home. Church family, you can come forward and, and let that decision be made known. If you need to put trust in Christ as Savior, we want to celebrate that with you. Or if you just need prayer in general, uh, then feel free to come forward and we can pray for you. But let's continue to sing and respond appropriately during this time of invitation.
1: There has never been There will never be A God like you A love so true There has never been And there will never be A God like you A love so true There has never been There will never be God, like you, a love so true. Yeah. How great, how great, how great is your love. how great, how great is your love, how great, how great, how great is your love for us.
2: Amen. Amen. What a joy to celebrate the love that God has for us that's been revealed through the miracle of his unexpected mercy. Let me offer a prayer of benediction, and we can depart here with that passion and that privilege to share that love with others. Father in heaven, we're grateful for this day to be able to worship you. We're grateful for folks that are being ready to be released all around this world. We pray for a continued uh, provision for these teams headed to Guatemala, we pray for continued provision for the teams in Africa, for those going to our community. And that as all of us go to the places that you would lead us, may we be the ambassadors, once again bringing people to a greater understanding of your great love and the miracle of your unexpected mercy. For it's in your precious and holy name that we exalt and we commit our lives to today. And forevermore. To Jesus be the glory. Amen and amen. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you next week.